So I'm going to um, offer a talk tonight about our practice. And I um, also want to say that um, there may have been some people that missed earlier the announcement about we appreciate that there be no, there's no need to be taking any notes or writing since these are all going to be recorded and um, <clears throat> and uh, sent out to you in the next couple of weeks or so. So just to let you know, this will all be recorded so there's no need to, to write. So you can just listen and take it all in. The first thing I'd like you to hear is congratulations. <laughs> You've completed a full day of practice, and that's uh, very wonderful. Saraha says that within my body are all the sacred places of the world. And the most profound pilgrimage I can ever make is within my own body. Again, this first foundation of mindfulness of the body, that within my body are all the sacred places of the world. And <clears throat> the most profound pilgrimage I can ever make is within my own body. So it's rare, of course, for many of us to get to a retreat, to take time to do a retreat. And of course, there's so many other things we could do with a, with a week off, and yet you've chosen to be here, which is very wonderful. And sitting with ourselves, with the, sometimes metaphorically it said, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, and we get to sit with it all as being a human being. I mentioned uh, earlier uh, that there's two types of people, those that have issues and those who are dead. And so we're alive and we have issues. So we're, we're going to be working with these issues within our practice. And of course, um, I love how Rumi deals with the issues and that his poem, The Guest House, about this being human is a guest house and every moment a new arrival and welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows. Treating each guest honorably, the dark thoughts, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door and invite them in. To paraphrase a few of the lines from the guest house, what a very radical thing to do with these issues. Meet them at the door and invite them in. It goes on to say, be grateful for whoever comes, because each has been sent a guide from beyond. So retreat is a time to pause, to stop, to listen to the inner murmurings of our heart. And it's fair to say that it's not easy at times. Our minds are not so naturally settled, and particularly when we begin a first day of practice, we may begin to see how unsettled it really is. Bhante Gunaratana, he wrote a very beautiful, he's written a number of very good books. One is Mindfulness in Plain English. 
But he writes that somewhere in this process of meditation, you may come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy. <laughs> that your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> but he says, no problem. You're not any different than you were yesterday. You're not any crazier than you were yesterday. Perhaps it's always been this way, but you just never noticed. Somewhere in this process of meditation, you'll come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy, that your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels, barreling down the hill, utterly out of control. No problem, you're not any crazier than you were yesterday. Perhaps it's always been this way, but you just never noticed. We laugh because we can see the workings of our own mind and heart and uh, find the truth in those, those words. So easy does it. And again, um, I've brought up a few times about the importance of attitude. Attitude with our practice. I told you <clears throat> earlier the Pema Chodron story about training a dog, and if you train it kindly, it helps support to grow with confidence and flexibility. Trade, train it unkindly with fear, you become more neurotic and confused, and hopefully we're choosing the path of uh, growing with confidence and flexibility. Bob Sharples, a meditation teacher from Australia, he writes, don't meditate to fix yourself or to heal yourself or to improve yourself or to redeem yourself. Rather, do it as an act of love, of a friendship to yourself. And in this way, there's no longer any need of the subtle aggression of self-improvement for the endless guilt of not doing enough. It offers the possibility of an end to the ceaseless rounds of trying so hard that wraps our lives in a knot. How about meditation as an act of love? I think many of us can relate to um, these statements of the subtle aggression of self-improvement, the endless guilt of not doing enough, of wrapping our lives in a knot. So how about this way of practicing in a way that's befriending? And you know, to be very honest in my own meditation practice, uh, I'm, sometimes it takes a long time f for me to learn these things and I almost feel like the first 20 years of my practice was about hitting my head against the wall, but I have a very hard head, so I couldn't feel much, and it took about 20 years to realize that it hurt. <laughs> so how about meditation as an act of befriending? And if you don't still believe me, and you still harbor that to be made of the right meditative stuff, you've got to do it the hard way, this is dedicated to you. So if you can start the day without caffeine or pep pills and be cheerful and ignore aches and pains, you must be made of the right meditative stuff. 
if you, can, if you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles and eat the same food every day and be grateful for it, you must be made of the right meditative stuff. If you can understand when loved ones are too busy to give you any time, if you can overlook people taking things out on you through no fault of yours when something goes wrong, you must be made of the right meditative stuff. If you can take criticism and blame without resentment and face the world without lies and deceit, you must be made of the right meditative stuff. If you can conquer tension without medical help, relax without liquor, sleep without the aid of drugs, if you can do all of these things, you must be the family dog. <laughs> so much of being made of the right meditative stuff. But there is these values that um, meditation can do when we begin to stop, begin to learn about ourselves. And there's a very beautiful poem by a Nobel laureate named Pablo Neruda from Chile. And he has a, a poem called Keeping Quiet and, and speaks about in this poem what would it be like if the whole world could just stop for 12 seconds. And, Within this poem, there's a few lines that to me really describe why we stop, why we meditate, the importance of it. And to me, these are some of the most beautiful words I've ever read, ever spoken, that speak to the reason of why we would stop and to meditate. He says, if we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving, and for once could do nothing. Perhaps this huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us when everything seems to be dead in winter and later proves to be alive. Just love those words. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps this huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us when everything seems to be dead in winter and later proves to be alive. And so we've begun to enter into this huge silence, all of us together, to listen to the murmurings of our own heart. To begin to understand ourselves. That's how we begin to make peace. This willingness to sit and to be with ourselves. Hafiz, a wonderful Persian poet, he speaks about that within every one of us there is a gem. He says, not many teachers in this world can give you as, as much enlightenment as sitting all alone for five days in your closet. That would do it. That means not leaving and you better get a friend to help you with a few sandwiches and a chamber pot. No reading, no writing. This sitting alone, though, is not recommended if you're normally sedated or have been under a doctor's surveillance because of your brain. 
But dear one, don't let Hafiz fool you. There is a ruby buried inside here. Don't let Hafiz fool you. There's a ruby buried inside here. As we sit with ourselves and enter into the huge silence, we can begin to understand ourselves. This understanding is the ruby. This human condition is just so precious and so fragile. We get to sit with ourselves in retreat. We're taking away a lot of the things that keep us occupied during the day. That's why we're saying to not read or write or get on our technology and so forth, but to technology and so forth, but to really begin to sit with ourselves. So tonight, and I often like to do this on the, the first, after the full day of practice, is to speak about <clears throat> what brings us to practice. And because I find that this is very inspiring for each of us to reflect upon um, what brings us to practice. And um, actually, I know some of you went to the public talk that I offered a few nights ago, and I spoke about this a little bit, but I'll speak a little bit more. That for me, what really began my practice to some degree many years ago was um, the realization that I and everyone um, would die and that it could happen at any time. And this happened to me when I was uh, four years old, riding in the back seat of my parents' car. And I had this, I don't know how I all of a sudden realized this, but that's what I realized, that I and everyone could die at any moment. And I remember sharing this with my mother and father, and my mother said to me, don't worry, Bobby, and um, it won't happen for a long time, a long, long time. And, you know, I remember, and I still can in some ways, the kindness in her voice to help me to feel safe, but I actually knew that she wasn't fully telling the truth because there was no guarantee, because what I knew was what I knew, is that death could come at any time. And unfortunately, to say this was, this was understood by me at the age of four, and by the time I was nine, I lost my younger brother. He died of an illness. I shared a room with him. My best friend who lived across the street died, went into a diabetic coma one night. And my grandfather who lived downstairs died of a a heart attack. These were very powerful experiences early in my life that created a lot of um, grief and sadness and confusion, anxiety, despair. It's powerful when you realize that um, this life is finite. I'm curious how, how many of us here recall the memory of the, the first time that you realized that 
you were going to die. Does anybody recall that memory? A few people? Yeah. And for those of you who didn't recall, I hope I'm not letting, giving you the news tonight. Well, <laughs> sorry, you're going to die. That's, that's, the, that's the truth. Hopefully not for a long, 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 long time. I remember once asking my teacher on his 80th birthday how long was 80 years, and he looked at me and smiled and went like this. 80 years. 80 years. And I had mentioned the other night, too, about uh, my wife was teaching an uh, MBSR class, and we were going around the circle on the first <laughs> night, and people are sharing what brought them to the class, and one gentleman said, um, last thing I remember was my 21st <coughs> 21st birthday, and now I'm 46, and I don't know what happened in between these years. <coughs> Mary Jane Block, she writes, everything takes longer than you think it should or thought it would except your life. Everything takes longer than you think it should or thought it would except your life. And by Faith Baldwin, time is a dressmaker. It specializes in alterations. <laughs> time is a dressmaker. It specializes in alterations. In Jane Kenyon, she writes, I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. And I ate cereal, sweet milk, and a ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birchwood, and all morning I did the work that I love, and at noon I lied down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the wall, and I planned another day, just like this day. But one day, I know it will be otherwise. One day, I know it will be otherwise. One of the th things that I love about the story of the Buddha on his quest for enlightenment is just how human it is and how I can relate to this so deeply. So I'd like to share with you a little bit about the story. And so uh, there was a, a baby born, and his name was Siddhartha Gautama. It's back in ancient India. 
nearly 2,600 years ago. <clears throat> and he was a, uh, born into a um, royal family and actually born and was a prince and was destined to become a king like his father. And um, it was very customary in ancient India when a baby is born to call like some holy people in to look at like the length of the ears, the nose, the arms, and different bodily characteristics in the eyes and so forth, disposition and make predictions. And so five of these um, holy people came in and four of them said, definitely will become uh, a great king. But the youngest one, name was Kodanya, said, no, no, he won't become a king. He's going to become a Buddha. And when the king heard this, the king was um, very alarmed. And even though four of them had said, oh, he's going to be a great king, that young holy one, there was something about how he said that that kind of worried the king. The king got really concerned and didn't want his son, of course, to become a Buddha, but to become a king like himself and to rule the lands. And so the king decided to shelter his son and to supply him with all of the pleasures of the day and education and sports and so forth, and um, just to kind of shield him from any of the sorrows of the world and being filled with all of these sensual delights, and so forth. And it's said that Siddhartha lived in this dream world of pleasure and entertainment and sports and everything else for 29 years. And in his 29th year, something occurred to Siddhartha about wanting to go out into the kingdom. He hadn't really been out in the kingdom where more of the regular folks live. Always was living in different palaces, one for each season, and all these pleasures. But he decided to uh, go out of the palace and um, in a, on a sojourn with a, with a charioteersman or Uber driver named Chana. And... Um, So they went on this outing, and they, in time, they came across a person that was very old and bent over and gray hair and so forth. And, and Siddhartha said to China, who is this? And China said that this is an old person. If you live long enough, you will age. And Siddhartha said, Siddhartha said you mean this would happen to me, to, to everyone? He goes, yes, if you live long enough, there's no escape from aging. And it's as if for the first time Siddhartha's eyes became very clear. He probably had seen old people before, but living in this dream world, he, he, it didn't really register. His life is just so much fun and this and that. But this time it paused him. And it penetrated him a bit, this understanding that 
aging is a reality. So he soon went back to the palace and, and actually fairly soon after that he was once again lost in his dream world and pleasure world and so forth and going along in his life in that way for a period of time. And then it, something beckoned in him again to once again go out of the palace and into the kingdom and went out with another sojourn with uh, Chana and, and they came across a person really, really ill, violently ill. And Siddhartha said to Chana, who is this? Go, this is a person that is very ill and you know, everyone from time to time are, will eventually get very ill. And perhaps this time too, Siddhartha's eyes opened up and saw and realized this in a way that he really hadn't seen before. He probably had seen sickness before, but somehow just lost in this dream world that didn't really impact him. But this time it did. Oh, this illness. And Chana said, yes, everyone, no one can escape from illness. So this was kind of a piercing inside him in Siddhartha. But soon again, they went back to the palace and actually soon again, kind of once again, lost in that dream world of pleasure, entertainment, sports, and so forth. So this was a gradual process. There was these piercings of these messengers, but then lost again into the dream world. But again, he seemed to be curious about going out of the palace another time and went with Chana out into the kingdom and there in their journey they came across a dead person, a corpse. And Siddhartha saw right away this person wasn't breathing. Their color was of the skin was was different. And Siddhartha actually touched the body, and felt a coldness. And that penetrated him. Two and a half years ago, my father died, and I, I remember touching him. He was cold. You can still feel it at times. This particular incident with Siddhartha kind of pierced him deeply. And China went on to say, yes, everyone will die. No one can escape from death. This time, Siddhartha was very, very upset. And it came back to him, oh, aging, illness, death. And even when he came back to the palace, he was, wasn't interested in losing himself into the pleasures and the entertainment and all of these things. He was forlorn. What am I going to do? What is this life? So he was very deeply upset now and didn't know what to do with this life. If it's all going to end in this way. 
Well, this went on for a period of time, and once again, Siddhartha said, let's, let's, let's go out one more time into the kingdom and just see what we can discover. And, and this fourth time out, a very unusual thing happened. He came across like a samana, an ascetic, a holy person. And this person had a very different feel to them. Siddhartha had never seen a person like this before. The way they walked, how they were embodied, the sense of serenity or calmness around them. And Siddhartha asked China, who is this? This person is so different than anyone I ever met before. And, and China said, this is a person that's dedicating their life to understanding the meaning of life. And when Siddhartha heard that, it was a glimmer of hope. He, he, he didn't know. This was the first time he had heard. This. I mean, there's actually people that dedicate their lives to understand the meaning of life? And Shana said, yes, there's a, you know, there's, there's these, there are those like sadhus. They are dedicating their lives to understanding the meaning of life. And when Siddhartha heard this, he got excited. He goes, well, the, and inside his heart, he said, this is the only thing that makes sense to me. There's a possibility. And so the story goes, he went back to the palace and he realized this is what he must do too. And that um, becoming a king is not what he wanted to do. He wanted to spend his time to try to understand what is the meaning of life. His father had heard about um, Siddhartha planning to leave the palace and came to him and begged him, please don't leave. And the father said, the king, great king said, I can give you anything. I'm a great king. Tell me what you want, I'll grant it for you. And so Siddhartha thought for a while and said, all right, Dad, grant me that I don't get old, that I don't get sick, and that I don't die. And the king realized that um, he could not fulfill those wishes. So one night, Siddhartha left the palace. He also had had a wife and a son to be born. He knew that they would be taken care of, and his heart was just so trembling <coughs> to go on this sojourn to understand what is this life. And in Pali language, there's a one word that kind of describes the state of mind of Siddhartha. And that one Pali word is called samwega. And samwega means when you have a realization that death can come at any moment, it catapults you into a sense of spiritual urgency. What is this life? It's kind of a powerhouse. That's one word. That's the definition, that one word, samwega. When you have the realization that death can come at any moment, it catapults you into a sense of spiritual urgency. What is this life? So he left the palace, his family, and went on this long sojourn that took about six years. 
It is said, though, just to jump ahead a bit, that after his awakening, he came back to the palace because deep down he was a family man. <laughs> and he came to his wife and to his son, and he taught them what he had learned, and they got enlightened as well, and they all lived happily ever after, <laughs> in a way. <laughs> but he did go back to the palace and teach them what he had learned, and they did awaken. So I, I love that part of the story, that he came back. He came back to share with them. But he also, um, you know, for the rest of his life, he taught the Dharma, the teachings of awakening, until he died the age of 80. I have a deep sense that everyone here has met these messengers one way or another. Because I think the truth is that I don't think that you could be here and take this retreat if you if these messengers haven't touched you one way or another. You might have different stories, different situations, but and it may not be exclusively one. You know, you may not relate as much to aging, but as much as perhaps you yourself might be living with an illness or someone that you know has had an illness or someone you know has passed on or is gravely ill. I have a sense that you all have met these messengers in one way or another, and I really want to invite you to Reflect upon this a little bit. And of course, that fourth heavenly messenger, the fourth heavenly messenger is the one that gets you on the path. And it could perhaps be a book you read. It could be a person or a teacher that you know. It could be someone that you don't know. It could be like Mother Teresa and just the way that she lived her life it inspired you that maybe there's more. You know, for me, there was, there was definitely a, a fourth heavenly messenger. And I mean, I've had many of them when I think of it now through the years, but there was one particular person that early on that was very, very special to me. His name was Bill Jackson. And um, so I shared with you, you know, this death early in my life, and it really was a big thing. I, I, I was really, to be very honest, very lost and confused through my um, primary school years, elementary school, junior high school, high school. And... Um, it was also a crazy time in the United States while I was growing up. There was the Vietnam War. And it seemed like it was never going to end. And it turned out that I got a, a draft number, but I, had a, I got a very high number on the draft. And fortunately, the, the war ended not soon after that, but I um, didn't know if I was going to get drafted. Also around this time, the Beatles grew the hair long, and Dylan was singing, the times are a-changing. And of course, there's the psychedelic drugs and so forth. And um, I was very confused and lost during those times. 
And I didn't, I think that I was so confused and so lost, I didn't even know how confused and lost I was. And um, I got very poor grades in high school. And when high school ended, I was working in a chicken restaurant and that was looking like my future. And a friend of mine said, well, um, I'm gonna go back and take an extra year of high school so I can go to college. And, and um, I hadn't even thought about going to college. I just wanted to get out of school because I didn't like it. Because it, and why I say I didn't like it was that it didn't mean anything to me because I was so lost and so confused. And um, so my friend said, well, I'm gonna do this extra year of high school. And so I thought, all right, well, I'll, I, I'll do that. And, and he, he wanted to go to college and, I, and then it kind of perked my interest. Well, maybe I'll take a look at some colleges. And so I did this extra year and began to look at colleges. And I decided since I was into downhill skiing that I would go to Northeastern Vermont, hopefully, and get into a college right near, next to a ski area. And so I could ski, and so I actually was able, lucky enough, to do that. And so for the first couple of years of college, I majored in skiing, <laughs> getting drunk, smoking marijuana, and trying to have girlfriends. And at the end of two years, I got an official looking letter from the college, and I opened it up, and it said that I had flunked out. <laughs> and um, my mother and father were pretty upset about this, as well as me. And so I think they helped with me, and I was readmitted with a warning. And my mother begged me, isn't there anything, please take a look in the course catalog, there's gotta be something that would interest you. And so I just said, all right, I'll take a look at this. And I knew that I didn't wanna do any more reading or writing, arithmetic, history, and science, even though those are all wonderful subjects, but um, they didn't speak to me. I was just so lost and confused. But I saw one name of a class that perked my interest. And I recognized the first half of the course title. It said, The Wisdom of the East. But then there was a colon, and I couldn't even pronounce the next words, which was Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, and Zen. But, I re but what caught me was the words, The Wisdom of the East. And that was because, sounds very funny, but it's, it's really true is that growing up, I absolutely loved Chinese food. <laughs> and I knew that the East had to do with China. And then there was something about being in Chinese restaurants that I really, really, I loved the food, I loved the smells, I loved the pictures of the Buddhas and the dragons and the nice, the flute music and like, there was something about it. I always was happy going. There was some, I, I, I was connected to the East in some way, mostly through their food. <laughs> but, but there was a vibe there that was very different than your regular crazy American restaurant, loud restaurant. 
I would say Howard Johnson's, but people may not know that, or Denny's. <coughs> and so I decided to take this class. I had no idea what I was walking into. Actually, I was walking into Hogwarts. And, um, but I remember, I'll never forget that first class walking in, not quite knowing what to expect. And when I went into the room, my professor was greeting us, and he was sitting on top of his desk in a full lotus position with jeans on. I had never had a professor with jeans on, never mind sitting on top of his desk in a full lotus position. This, is, this had never happened to me before. Um, most of my professors are very scary looking in suit jackets and ties and kind of tight and, and so forth. And, um, and this gentleman, his name was Bill Jackson, was very warm, very welcoming us. And there was something about him that was Wow, who is this guy? And um, he assigned to us to read the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu, The Way of Life, a book of 81 different epigrams. And, um, you know, and he really encouraged us to, to, in, to read and to contemplate these words of Lao Tzu for ourselves. And he was a wonderful teacher and, and there was something about him. I, I, um, Anne and I were talking about this. The, we, we were trying to define embodiment, but I don't know if we could find words, but he was embodied. <laughs> I mean, you know it when you know it, when you see it. And, you know, and my, my thing that I used to say about him, like, like with Bill, is that I knew that he knew something. I didn't know what he knew, but I knew that I wanted to know what he knew. <laughs> That's what it was about. He knew something, and I wanted to know what he knew. I don't know what it was that he knew, but he knew something. Something important that just emanated from his presence, his being. So I was saying that he had us read the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu. And this book of 81 epigrams or poems, profound teachings about life and mystery, wisdom, humility, Each one, I would just read and read over and over again. And there was one in particular, epigram number 47, that I, I found myself just reading again and again and again. To paraphrase it, it said, there's no need to look outside your window for <clears throat> everything you need to know is inside you. No need to look out your window for everything you need to know is inside you. And I, I just, those words just rang within me from the skin to the flesh to the muscle to the bone, trying to absorb what did this mean? 
There's no need to look outside your window for everything you need to know is inside you. And as I delved into that again and again, it began to gradually occur to me that if I wanted to know something, I needed to look inside here. And that was a very powerful revelation to me because I'll be very honest, up to that point in my life, I had never thought about that ever. It was a revelation that if I wanted to know something, I needed to begin to look inside here. I had never thought of that before. And that was really the beginning of my meditative journey. There's a beautiful quote from Carl Jung. I just love this. He goes, your vision will become clear only when you look into your heart. Who looks outside dreams? Who looks inside awakens? It's so beautiful. Your vision will become clear only when you look into your heart. Who looks outside dreams? Who looks inside awakens? Your vision will become clear. Who looks inside awakens? Such a powerful teaching, and I never had realized that before, thought about that before, like that if I wanted to know something, I needed to begin to look inside. And so that's uh, been a driving force for me personally uh, all these years. There's no need to look outside your window for everything you need to know is inside you. And so how have these four messengers touched you? And actually in the Dharma, they're actually referred to as the four heavenly messengers. And some of us might not, like, what heavenly? What's so heavenly about aging, illness, death? It's heavenly in the sense that it's waking us up to this life waking us up to the realities of aging, illness, death, and the possibility that we can grow wiser. That Maybe there's a way that we can understand about this life. So may we use our time here wisely Sincerely, it's a beautiful question. Think about how, how do we practice sincerely from this morning? To reflect upon this one wild and precious life.
It's from a New York City taxi cab driver. I arrived at the address and I honked the horn and after waiting a few minutes I honked again. I took the car into park and then I walked up to the door and I gave a knock. And I heard a frail elderly voice say, just a minute. And then I could hear something being dragged across the floor and after a long pause, the door opened. And there in front of me was a small woman in her 90s. She was wearing a print dress and a pillbox hat and a veil pinned on it like somebody out of a 1940s movie. And by her side was a small nylon case. And the apartment that she lived in looked as if no one had actually lived there all these years because all the furniture was now covered with sheets. There were no clocks on the walls, no knickknacks or utensils on the counters. And in the corner, there was a cardboard box filled with photos and glassware. She said to me, would you carry my bag out to the car? And so I took the suitcase to the cab. Then I returned to assist the woman. And she took my arm and we walked slowly towards the curb. And she kept thanking me for my kindness. And I said, it's nothing, I told her. I just try to treat my passengers the way I would want my mother to be treated. Oh, you're such a good boy, she said. And when we got into the cab, she gave me an address. And then she asked, could you drive through downtown? It's not the shortest way, I answered quickly. She said, I don't mind. I'm not in a hurry. I'm on my way to a hospice. I looked in the rearview mirror. Her eyes were glistening. And she went on to say, I don't have any family left. And the doctor says, I don't have very long. I quietly reached over and I shut off the meter. What route would you like me to take, I asked. And for the next two hours, we drove through the city. She showed me the building where she had once worked as an elevator operator. We drove through the neighborhood where she and her husband had lived and where they were newlyweds. She had me pull in front of a furniture warehouse that had once been a ballroom where she had gone dancing as a girl. Sometimes she'd ask me to slow down in front of a particular building or a corner and we would sit there staring into the darkness, saying nothing. As the first hint of the sun was creasing on the horizon, she suddenly said, I'm tired, let's go now. So we drove in silence to the hospice. It was a low building, looked like a convalescent home. Two orderlies shortly came out as the cab pulled up. They must have been expecting her and they opened up I opened up the trunk and I took out the small suitcase to the door and the woman was already seated in a wheelchair and she asked me, how much do I owe you, reaching into her purse, and I said nothing. But you have to make a living, she answered. There are other passengers, I responded. And almost without thinking, I just bent down and I gave her a hug and she held on to me tightly. And she said, you just gave an old woman a little moment of joy. Thank you. 
I squeezed her hand and I walked into the dim morning light. Behind me, it felt like a door was shut. It was the sound of a closing of a life. I didn't pick up any more passengers for the rest of that shift, and I just drove aimlessly, lost in thought. For the rest of the day, I could hardly talk. On quick review, I don't think I've done anything more important in my life. Taxi cab driver just really conveys so beautifully this poignant, touching, fragile, precious life. And because of that fragility and the preciousness, this is what brought Siddhartha Gautama into the forest to understand what is this life. And perhaps with all that you've been living within your life that brought you to meditation, to try to understand more about this life and how do we live this life in wiser ways, compassionate ways. Sunkapa writes, the human body at peace with itself is more precious than the rarest of gems. Cherish your body, it is yours this one time only. The human form is one with difficulty and it is easy to lose. All worldly things are brief like lightning in the sky. This life you must know as like a tiny splash of a raindrop, a thing of beauty that disappears barely as it even comes into being. The human body at peace with itself is more precious than the rarest of gems. The human body at peace with itself is more precious than the rarest of gems. So just taking some moments and filling into this breathing, listening, feeling body, The human body at peace with itself is more precious than the rarest of gems. And just sit for a few moments. beings dwell with peace. So thank you, and it's time for some walking practice. And you're welcome just to walk and reflect 
on these heavenly messengers and how perhaps they've touched you. So letting your mind just reflect upon this of aging, of illness, of death, and of awakening, and particularly maybe focusing on that fourth heavenly messenger, who have been some of your messengers that brought you onto the path, that touched you, that perhaps pointed away. So each of these are connected, and of course what brought us onto the path is perhaps times in our life that's been challenging, that's been painful, that's been hard, be it related to aging, illness, or death, or just the complexity of being in relationship with others. That somehow these experiences led you, or perhaps a deep curiosity, the mystery, what is this life? That led you into this practice of looking more deeper inside yourself. You're here in this retreat. This is no coincidence. You, there's been causes and conditions prior to here that brought you here. So I want to invite you to reflect upon what brings you here. What brought you onto the path of practice? Who's been your heavenly messengers? Thank you, and we'll ring a bell in about 25 minutes, and then we'll come back for our last sit. Thank you.